Greetings, future fossils. I don't think anyone alive right now would deny that we are living in bizarre times, but lately I've been feeling like the broken clock that's right twice a day. For my entire adult life, I've been preoccupied by the idea that we're living through an extraordinary moment. Different people have different words for this. The sixth mass extinction, the Anthropocene, the singularity, late capitalism, the diagnoses are as plural as the ostensible causes. I guess the point is, though, that I'm not unique, and there are a lot of people out there that regard what we're living through right now as the moment they've been training for, as the moment we've all intuited was coming. Of course, when you get into predictions and prophecies, it's easy to conflate time scales. So I think I spent most of the last 10 years imagining that the epochal events that would unfold over the course of my life were going to happen a lot more gradually than I thought they would the 10 years prior. It's a complex topic made more complex by the fact that it's very difficult to know which way is up when you're caught in a riptide like the one we're in right now. All of this is to say that when I went back and uncasked what I thought was a way overdue conversation with novelist and writing professor Alex Shakar, recorded last August for Future Fossils, feeling the need to get his conversation out to you folks now, even though it may not be timely or relevant. Well, it turned out actually that the entire conversation was suffused with a strange, almost oracular significance. Alex's two novels, The Savage Girl and Luminarium, strike to the very heart of the deepest inquiries I think are capable of us as human beings, but they also do it in a way that speaks to the peculiar condition that we have here in the early 21st century, a sort of roiling slow motion apocalypse, breakdown of consensus reality, a collective psychedelic experience that challenges everything we think we know. He's one of my favorite authors, and when I listened to this conversation again, I had a new understanding of why that is the case. His books embody, I believe, this paradoxical essence of our moment and what it is to be alive in it. The hope, the awe, the terror, the trauma, the humor, the possibility, the sheer creative splendor, the transcendence, the dread, and the confusion. And at the heart of it, the unresolved, potentially unresolvable mystery, luminous, ever-present, beckoning. It's a rare treat for me to get to speak to one of my favorite authors on this show. I'm really excited to share this with you. And I'm deeply grateful to everyone whose continued support allows me to even have these conversations in the first place, to make time for them. The financial, but possibly more importantly, the emotional support of the Future Fossils community, the sense that I'm on the right track, I'm doing the right thing with this show, has kept the light on here when in those moments of doubt, I questioned whether there really needed to be a lighthouse on this beach. These last two weeks especially, I've seen a surge in support, and so I really need to take a moment and thank all of the new contributors, Joshua Jackson, Casey O'Kane, Joshua Yeldon, Tim Mansfield, Veronica Robertson, Ahmed Kabil, Ben Hewitt, Casey Kripe, everyone who agrees that this show may be too weird to live, but is also too rare to die. 
Today, I finally launched the Future Fossils Discord server. Hopefully, I'll see you in there. We have a lovely scene in the Future Fossils Facebook group, but I wanted to give something a little bit more personal and community-oriented, a little cave from which we can watch the spectacular colors of the sunset of this age or the sunrise of the next age. Which is it? I don't know. Let's find out. Thanks for listening, and thanks for letting me introduce you to the warmth, soul, wisdom, and humor of Alex Shakar. If you're stuck at home with time to read, I cannot more confidently recommend two novels for this strange moment than The Savage Girl and Luminarium. In the show notes, there's a link to my Amazon shop. Grab these books there, and you're helping me and Alex and yourself all at the same time. But, you know, I mean, what is identity anyway? And can you really change the world with a purchase? Yes, actually if it changes you. Alex Shakar, it's a pleasure to get to speak to you on Future Fossils and at all. It's a it's a oh, real treat. Thanks. Likewise, Thank, I, I'm happy to be here. I gotta uh, first of all, I have to pay my dues to Robert Gehorsum for introducing us, um, who yeah. you know is almost like a character from one of your books, um, <clears throat> right there, wheeling and dealing at the intersection of of various futural things and uh definitely he's a wonderful guy yeah so you know this is going to be a tricky conversation because obviously i don't know who has read your books i don't often have the opportunity to speak directly with the author about their work on the show but i'm going to hope that what this does is mobilize my listenership to go read the savage girl and luminarium and to appreciate why uh, these two books are two of my favorite novels. So, uh, oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to hear. <laughs> all right. So first of all, like, how would you, if we started in orbit, you know, we're doing the Google Earth VR, like dive into specificity. Um, got it. <laughs> this is like the boring generic question, but what got you into writing? Like how, how did you become oh, wow. a writer? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. I don't know. I mean, how far do you want me to go back? Uh, uh, <laughs> Triassic period. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, yeah, I, I think, well, I, I, I guess just sort of, uh, I grew up, uh, my dad, my dad's an actor. Um, and so I was around the arts in, in a certain way. Um, and, and I, I, I saw him, playing the parts of, of uh, playing different parts in, in, in different stories. And, and um, I think I, I considered doing that for a while. And then I, I wanted to, I think what, what, what appealed to me about writing was that I, I would have a little bit more control, or at least I, I, at the time, maybe that that's what I thought that I would have a little bit more control over, over, you know, creating not only you just, just sort of being the, in, inhabiting the characters, creating the worlds in, in that kind of way. So, uh, and then I had a, an influential uh, teacher in high school 
who uh, who got me into uh, really really appreciating fictional worlds. Um, and uh, you know, I, I started reading more and more, and and uh, I think I, I decided at some point in in I, th- I think I was in high school, and I decided that I was going to be a writer, and I really really hadn't. I don't. I don't think I knew what I was getting into then. You know, I, th- I thought I was picturing a very different kind of lifestyle. I think you know than, than what it ends up being. Uh, but uh, I don't. I don't re- regret the decision. I, I think it's allowed me to. Um, you know, then the, I, I inhabit these worlds that I write about for a long time because these books take me years to write. You know, so uh, it's. it's What's one of the nice things is is it's it's really fun to uh, be able to go into a world like the world of the of the Savage Girl, which is you know um, exploring the world of these uh, people who spot fashion trends and and you know and and uh, and learn all about that and 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 sort of sort of learn all about the world that they're in and 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 the world that I'm in, uh, sort of sort of connecting the two and then emerge from that bubble and then and then dive into another one and and sort of novels are are, are uh, a learning experience for me definitely i don't i don't know what i'm writing when i start out you know really or at least you know i have a theory about what I, what i'm what i'm going to write but it uh it evolves you know and and it helps me evolve so uh that since you brought it up i guess the savage girl is a good place to start this this book, even though it takes place, it was like 2001, right? Like, it mm-hmm. it takes place before smartphones and tablets and social media in the kind of contemporary sense, but it does feel to to speak to even now in 2019 so many very pressing contemporary issues. You know, like you seem to be ch- like charting the creode. Even though there's like, you know, uh, inevitability and contingency in evolution, whether biological or cultural. And even though you can't necessarily, you, the gen- generic you, can't necessarily tell the specific forms it will take. It's like you can see the landscape. And I, I admire both of these works for seeing the basin of possibilities <laughs> into which... Uh, culture is is being channeled by history. So I'm 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 really curious. You said you don't come into this with uh, an idea of what you're writing, but how did the decision of the Savage Girl, which you know, to to set this out, is a story in which this this uh, trend spotter finds a a woman, uh, like a teenage girl, living in the city, like a you know, a primitive, like a hunter gatherer wearing animal pelts and hunting pigeons and then deciding ironically or post ironically, put a pin in that to offer this up as the image for an ad campaign. So like where, (laughs) where, how did this world develop for you in the course of writing or what inspired you to write this book in the first place? Yeah. Well, uh, so, so yeah. Um, yeah, this the savage girl uh, ended up. You know, I mean, the story is is about uh, a, a woman who uh, moves to this kind of fictional city. It's called Middle City. It's a big American metropolis, and it happens to be built on a on a semi active volcano. And uh, she's going to the city uh, to take care of her sister Ivy, and and um, Ivy is a is a is a fashion model, sort of a you know a, a young. Um, fashion model who's recently had kind of had a meltdown and has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. 
and and uh, Ursula ends up connecting with Ivy's boyfriend Chaz, who who runs a trend spotting firm, and then she, so she gets pulled into this world of 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 trend spotting, of of finding the future, as 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 uh, as Chaz calls it, and then and then you know as as you sort of sort of told she she finds this uh this girl in the park and 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 is kind of infatuated with with the idea of of this you know so this kind of primitivity that she's seeing in this uh, in, in this girl in the park and 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 that becomes uh the basis for for an ad campaign and then things get things get increasingly out of control from there so i started out i mean the, the book started out <laughs> This is a, I was living in Austin, Texas at the time. It started out set in Austin, Texas, um, and the trend spotters were a bunch of people sitting around smoking cigarettes and, and, and talking a lot. And it, the story didn't go anywhere. Uh, so it, it, it took me a while uh, to, to find out what the what the story was. Um, and uh, and Ursula, who, who's the main character in, you know, uh, started out as being just just sort of a minor character. But what I was interested in, I think, and what I got increasingly interested in, and it, and it wasn't until I think you know the, the the second big rewrite of the book that I that I started seeing what the book was about for me, and that was this link between this you know sort of the idea of schizophrenia, if not like sort of the literal medical definition of it, this sort of cognitive dissonance and 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 delusion. Um, on the one hand, and consumerism on the other hand, and how those two things were, you know, kind of kind of working together, um, and uh, and in 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 our culture at the time, and so uh, from there, that allowed me to to explore a lot of interesting, you know, sort of things that these trend spotters predict and get into. Um, you know, you you mentioned post irony, like so. This is the big trend that. So there are these idealistic trend spotters like um, like uh, Javier, who believes that uh, that post irony is going to be this this uh, great new, you know, kind of new earnestness where we're going to we're going to really discover who we are and and we're going to use products to kind of self-create. And there are more cynical, you know, people like like Chaz, as you find out, who, you know, for him, post irony is this kind of cognitive dissonance wherein he has this theory about paradescence you know like like he takes Ursula through the supermarket and and they see that he tells her that every product has this broken soul you know so um like coffee any any successful ad campaign for coffee will will get you both to want the stimulation and the relaxation that you know that this this amazing magical beverage offers so that gets lodged in Ursula's mind. And so, you know, I think ultimately the book is, is getting at, you know, sort of the paradescence of our society and of, of capitalism and, and, um, and of all that stuff. So maybe I'll just stop talking and, and, and I, 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 could, I could talk more about any one of those things. That, but that, that's sort of how the project evolved. Yeah. Okay. So actually, I, I really wanted to bring up paradescence because I feel like this is one of the most useful small nuggets that is going to get like picked up by a virus and implanted in other ideas. <laughs> like, you know, that this, that, you know, the paradoxical essence, I love the examples that you give in this book. Uh, although you don't call out Nike specifically, you do bring up the fact that, you know, these are shoes, which are about 
gripping the earth, but at the same time, it's supposed to offer this this transcendence through the winged foot, the logo. You've got uh, air travel, which is both exotic and familiar, you know, comfortable and adventurous. Mm -hmm. And there is something in that hold, you know, that I've, I've often thought about this in terms of a paradox not being like a, a, a firm category of things, but being not, not ontological, but epistemological, right? Like it's not a thing, really. It has to do with our relationship to phenomena and the dissonance of our era and, and you know, stretching back decades is in between the way that we have become aware of our role as consumers you know, I think in a way it's sort of a contemporary version to weave prehistory into this to the kind of cognitive dissonance that must have happened for early humans when we had to reconcile the fact that we were killing other animals for food, you know, and like this sort of mm. the condition around which we began worshiping the bison or the, the cave bear or whatever, worshiping these things in their power, even though we were opposed in some way to them. And I don't know. So the, there's yeah. that thing and, you know, paradox as being a thing that is resolved by taking an additional perspective. And then also the condition of the schizophrenic as often, not always, but often paranoid. And Ivy's rants in this book about how she feels as though every move that she makes is she's responsible for like the currents and the flows through the world seems to speak a lot to something that wasn't, I don't think quite as pervasive or horrible uh, when you were were writing this book, but definitely is now, which is this understanding that, uh, you know, we live in this media environment where we are in a kind of a, a paranoid way exposed to our implications in all of these global webs of supply chains and, you know, like the way that the burning of the Amazon rainforests these last couple weeks has just torn people apart on, you know, as I've been watching social media, Mm. what are the right actions that I take in order to prevent this? If I'm in Kansas or whatever, you know, what finger do I have to twitch? What food do I have to stop buying to intervene in this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's um, it's it's great to hear you you getting that out of it. Yeah, Ivy has these um, delusions of reference, and and I think that 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 is something that she says these lines like "I am the drain magnet and the glamour continuum," and and <laughs> and it felt right for me at the time, and 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 all this was very new at the time that I was writing it. But but she does like get on a, a um this sort of uh, camera and on the web where 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 she's uh, being filmed all the time and she's telling people to send her money and she's setting the money on fire and it's interesting that you mentioned the rainforest too um because uh the 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 book does take us there too one of the things that i was really interested in is is sort of does this consumer culture that we're in give us power or does it take take it away and that was sort of for me. I, I think there's there's a little there's kind of a central koan for me at the central of at the center of each book that I write. And and for me, maybe that that was you know the the thing that I was exploring. You know the ways that this uh, the society we're in is so dynamic and so expansive and so uh, you know allowing us all these new 
powers um, we have are connecting, and at the same time, we are feeling like as you're as you're pointing out with you know what what do I do? How do I how do I stop this awful thing from happening? We see so much of it right now, and and that and we we see our own powerlessness too. And right around the time that you know the Savage Girl came out a week after nine eleven, and suddenly boom, like everything you know, like everything was different. It was very, very weird in that cultural commentators were, were getting on the air and saying the age of irony is over, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we were suddenly like in this strange way, like in this kind of post-ironic, you know, or, or people were proclaiming that we were. I don't think we really were, you know, but, 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 but irony was kind of going underground again. And a few days later, you know, there were GM commercials telling us to, to buy it, buy American, basically, and, to, and to, to keep the economy going. And the mayor and the president were all sort of getting on the air and, and telling us this was our power. This was how we could help was by sort of redirecting our urge to be citizens into our role as consumers. I have to bring up the documentary Century of the Self. Adam Curtis, have you seen this? Oh, wow. No, I, I really like that guy, though. I, I should check that out. It is a superb look at how over the latter half of the 20th century, advertising changed from being about the product to being about the consumer. It's in, in a way, it's a it's like mm. a prequel to the Savage Girl or, um, <laughs> you know, it's setting the stage for the kind of questions that you're asking. The whole point being that lifestyle consumerism became sometime in the 70s and 80s a way for people to express themselves amidst this sort of growing cognitive dissonance. And that that was, again, like what you're talking about, like the, it is the mm. consumer decision through which vote with your dollar. Right. And, and there are both right. cyn- sort of cynical and hopeful ways of looking at that. But, you know, I think I don't know if you have you heard of like metamodernism? I've like, never heard that term. Okay, no. so the, uh, Shia LaBeouf is one of the sort of more celebrity figures involved in this sort of a philosophical movement to reconcile the ironic and the the sincere. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, there's a there's a number of different forms of metamodernism that have emerged from different areas of of society, but mm-hmm. the one that the one that I find really fascinating is this, uh, this attempt to try and square the circle and to acknowledge that our times call for, you know, that the absolute relativism no longer works, that mm-hmm. uh, hipster detachment is no longer the, you know, a, a universally sufficient strategy. And that mm-hmm. there's a kind of, you know, much as I think as we moved out of the world of religion into the world of science, if we can talk about it in that way, you know, that this creeping renaissance that's been taking place over the last few centuries and how that, uh, like Robert Keegan at Harvard talks about that as a movement from operating within one value system from inside and identifying with the role that you take. And then, and as we move into the modern, then it's about authoring your own value system and then being able to move from role to role fluidly through the world. And then it seems like what's going on now is a similar turn into understanding how these different value systems live in some sort of ecological balance and how they, in a similar way, like the value systems themselves are fashions that you might adopt to, mm-hmm. to suit a particular context. And, and so, you know, we see this, maybe I'm getting way off the, the rail with this book, but like, 
you know, we see this a lot in the way that reality has become, as Eric Davis would say, an operationalized fiction, where this sort of consumer mentality has manifested itself politically in terms of which reality you want to buy mm-hmm. and, and enact. And yeah, yeah this uh, elective affinities. Um, uh, I want to go back to what you were saying about, you know, the, 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 uh, your description of metamodernism, which I'll have to look that up. You know, I, I um, toward the end of, of the Savage Girl where, you know, um, I, I do go into the rainforest and, and we, we sort of meet these European neo primitives who are who are living there, and there's there's a, a scheme to sort of quote unquote save the rainforest by collecting all its uh, genomes basically and, and and saving them in bottles. While Ursula is there, she starts thinking about the possibility of an ironic religion, and so that that sort of you know and, and, and to me you know it's it's kind of there's there's a sort of Basically, post-irony, as as the novel kind of was getting at it, is this thing that kind of pithes or, you know, suspends the dialectic that's going on between irony and earnestness into this state of kind of schizophrenia. But beyond that, maybe there's this possibility of an ironic religion. And and, and that was like the holy grail of, of 19th century philosophers like Schlegel. Western civilizations needs for intellectual freedom on the one hand, and, you know, this kind of morally principled society on the other. And and so uh, there's a sense where, where maybe where we're going, you know, with with uh, with consumerism. Well, is that part of this new ironic religion? Um, is that is there some way that we can take all this and use it? So I wanted to go on and talk about the second part of what you were saying, uh, but maybe maybe remind me a little bit. Uh, and you were you were sort of talking about people choosing where they wanted to where the uh, choosing um the operationalizing reality yeah i don't know there is something about this seemingly irresolvable balance between the true and the constructed and and it makes sense that as like a postmodern philosophy matures that we we reach a point where we realize that we're living in a kind of each of us a kind of virtual reality like we know and this is i'm going to try and bridge to Mm -hmm. luminarium here because there is this the more we learn about neuroscience the more we learn about the fallibility of the the human mind and the historicity of human perception and and experience and the way that it's Mm -hmm. all bound within an evolutionary and a psychological biography in a sense and so Everything from like the way that we perceive the difference between two colors, you know, like the basic optical illusions to the ways that we that our attention can be manipulated by marketers or by, you know, retail or political, that we are uh, unreliable narrators. So once we sort of we're like stumbling through the, the valley of the shadow of death where we <laughs> there's this absolutist. Uh, adherence to uh, relativism but then there are still there are things that are like well while not ubiquitous are common you know while not universal are essentially normal to the human experience and as we widen our understanding of intelligence we learn to see things from other ways there's this uh, tightrope that we have to walk and I think this is this is the uh, the sincere and ironic thing here like the new earnestness to borrow that phrase from the Savage Girl, is an earnestness that 
also has its tongue like firmly planted in its cheek. That is uh, provisional. It's like a phase change has happened here into being willing to move, you know, from earnest position into a new earnest position. It's like we've we've scraped ourselves off the sidewalk a little bit and we're we're blowing down the street. <laughs> and you handle this so beautifully in Luminarium, which I read first, which is I'll let you introduce it, but you know, one of the things that's handled so beautifully in this book is the question of virtual reality and one and its relationship to the broader sort of social machine. And then one of them is neurotheology and the you know what it means to our understanding of of the self and the mind and of religion given that we are capable of triggering these religious experiences or or uh, non-dual type experiences with magnets basically and electricity and mm-hmm. and both of these books are talking a lot about the permeability of a postmodern subject you know and mm-hmm. and the the multiplicity of that subject or the plurality and i feel like both of them are training a kind of a stereoscopic view on the challenges of navigating this kind of a world in any kind of uh, you know like finding any kind of solid ground or stable footing yeah yeah, yeah. I do think that it's funny. Only in retrospect, I, I really see Luminarium kind of as a continuation of the Savage Girl. In that, I think uh, taking that that question about ironic religion and then putting it into this other context was really l- looking at virtuality in a lot of different ways in in the in the book, and um, you know, and 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 about whether sort of technology has this. It seems to have this twin potential, you know, like to either you know, to make us more whole or to trap us in, in further and trap us in bubbles and and uh, and and in divides uh, from each other and and to isolate us. So, just to maybe to, to go into the story a little bit first, to just so that people know what we're talking about a little bit. Luminarium is about well, all right. So there's this guy Fred, yeah, Fred Fred Brunian, um, and his life is falling apart. Um, his the, he, his software company, which he's he's built from the ground up, is basically being stolen from him by this you know he, by this unequal partnership that 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 he got them into, and his brother his his twin brother is uh, is dying in in a hospital he's he's uh, in a he, he's in a coma from cancer and um, his fiance has left him and there are all these things going wrong in his life and. And they're starting to open up new kinds of questions uh, for him. And he sees this attractive woman putting up a flyer on on the wall of a, the hospital, and it's for a scientific study. And, and he he goes and checks it out, and she puts a, a helmet on his head. Oh, and, and, and Fred's also getting these mysterious messages. He started getting these messages from apparently from his twin brother um, who's in a coma, and he doesn't he, so he doesn't he thinks he's being trolled. He doesn't know what's going on. And so uh, he, he goes into the study and this woman puts a, like a sparkly gold motorcycle helmet on his head and it's got all these wires coming out of it. And he doesn't really know what to expect. And the first thing he knows is he's 
seeping out of his, you know, like he's expanding and becoming one with the chair that he's sitting in and one with the wires and one with the helmet and the whole room. And the, the feeling doesn't quite go away, you know, when, it, when, he, when he goes out into this debriefing um, with the uh, experimenter. And he's feeling at one with her, even as she's explaining what they've done to him, like sort of the, the little trick they've played on him neurologically. And so he doesn't know what to do with this. You know, he's got this overwhelming kind of effusive. He's falling in love. I mean, just, but that's just, you know, the start of it. And then and then he has to he, it's still not going away. And he, and he walks outside and all kinds of crazy things happen to him after that. And so the story takes Fred through all kinds of adventures. But the sort of the backbone of it is that every week he goes back into this study and they do something different to him. Do, they do. They create uh, yet another sort of uh, spiritual like a, a, a experience that we normally associate with spirituality. But they do it. And then and then she explains to him exactly how they did it, how they did it. You know, like, well, we you know, in, in terms of like the, the parts of, the, of his brain that they've messed with. So he has to reconcile uh, as his life is falling apart and as he's struggling to get his company back and as he's struggling to, you know, um, to, 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 to get, you know, he, and, and as dealing with his being in love with this woman, he has to kind of make sense of his materialist kind of understanding of the world and this other thing that's blossoming in, in him and increasingly doing so. So that storyline, you know, is what I think allowed me to, to, to get at these, uh, to get at these questions of whether technology is something that's going to, because there are all kinds of, I, I guess that you were, your, your question was about virtuality and I didn't quite go into that. Maybe, maybe I'll, his company is originally, you know, sort of, before uh, the big traumatic event happens to our society, you know, this is in the run-up. This is in the dot-com era. His uh, company is this utopian kind of virtual world for children um, that 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 he and his brothers are are, are creating. And then um, after 9/11, the, the the program funding dries up, and all the programmers are chasing the war dollars down to the Orlando area, which is um, where the the combination of military contractors and Pixar programmers and military bases are creating this thing called the military that programmers are calling the military entertainment complex. And so his company goes in a very different direction after that. And so and a lot of the novel actually takes place in virtual reality. You know, there, there, there are, are, are scenes where, where, um, where he and his, 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 um, and his younger brother, are basically in the simulations that they're creating. So I was able to explore with this story, like a lot of the, the questions about virtuality and about the ways that, the, that we're hoping that it'll give us new kinds of consciousness, new kinds of freedom, um, new kinds of insights, and the ways that it's, you know, and the, and the ways that maybe we're just sort of recreating the same thing over and over again, and we're stuck in this loop. Definitely. I, you know, this, this may seem like a... Uh tangent but i i just want to nod to the fact that you originally set the savage girl in austin which is in fact built on top of a dormant volcano <laughs> the the uh like a, a, a cretaceous seaway volcano uh at the blund creek preserve I, I watched the 2014 lunar eclipse from the lip of that volcano just north of san edwards university 
And, That's beautiful. <laughs> and there's something there's something about both of these books. I think we can do the Hail Mary pass and bring this all together here. <laughs> in which the presence of what uh, like Hakim Bey called ontological anarchy, you know, saying that the empire was never founded, that it, it, it's an assertion of human will against the indomitable chaos of the real. And mm. that, you know, the fact that we built the city on the volcano, I think, mm. and the emphasis to the way that at least some, although we civilization may consider them in crazy, some navigate urban spaces as though they were living in the wilderness all, already, which, in fact, they mm -hmm. are, um, mm. you know, that there is something really key to understanding these concerns about how, uh, about mm. enclosure and yeah. about the way that we continue to ensorcel ourselves into these complex economic structures. The military entertainment complex, for, for what it's worth, uh, is a term that I was introduced to from historian William Irwin Thompson in mm. his, I think it was like a 1972 or four mm. book, Evil in World Order, where he's uh. talking about exactly this thing. He's sort of predicting that mm -hmm. the promise of electronic emancipation was already being, the pig was getting the meat map drawn on its body already in the, in the sixties and seventies. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's that's really interesting. I mean, when when I um, I mean, when I first I, I first heard that just just from from programmers who are going through this uh, in, in the post 9-11 years and the term just set off a light bulb, um, you know, uh, it's like, oh, wait a minute. There's there's something there's something really interesting there. And then when I when I went down to research that area, so the novel takes place in, in, in New York City, um, which is which is one kind of organism. And I, I want to talk more about that, too. You know, by the by the way, that, that that point you brought up about cities. And then he goes down to to the Orlando area. And Orlando is this really interesting place of there. There are all kinds of, you know, sort of manufactured little societies there. He spends a while in Celebration, Florida, um, which is uh, this town built by Disney in this, uh, in the, with this kind of utopian plan. Uh, and some, some aspects of the city are neat in that, you know, like he, he, he wanted rich people and, and middle class people, not, there are no poor people there, <laughs> to, to like live, to live side by side, you know, connected through the alleys and the, and, and the streets are kind of power washed and, and every, every morning and, and, but there are also all these, all these, you know, kind of draconian laws about, about what you, you know, that the color of your white picket fence has to be white and it has to be a picket, you know, and so on and so forth. And Muzak just sort of comes out of the speakers of the downtown, basically comes out of the trees. And then there's like places like the Holy Land Experience uh, and like uh, Universal Studios uh, theme park. And so, you know, and so there are all these kind of like little, little utopian, dystopian worlds, you know. Oh, and then there's the industrial park itself that, that our mission is, is, is a part of. So, so yeah, I mean, there, there are all these, there are all these, uh, uh, kind of, you know, in, in a way, there are all these sort of virtual realities that are that that you know are are um, you know all over the landscape in in physical form. But going back to what you were saying about about cities, you know, I think that a traumatic event. So we, I think you're right that that we that we, that we're always trying to cocoon ourselves in in some kind of meanings and and that uh, 
a traumatic event like the tallest buildings in a city being, you know, decimated by by plane strikes. You know, I, I was really interested in I set the novel years after it, you know, um, I, it, in, in it, this the novel kind of comes at 9-11 from all these different angles. And you don't really know that it's that that's where it's going kind of as as you're reading. But it gets more and more clear that all these things that are happening, you know, like uh, the, the, the course of Fred's life, you know, um, what what's happened to his brother, what Mira is going through, Fred's uh, Fred's parents and, and their own sort of mourning. His mother is a is a, is a Reiki healer who responded to um, 9-11, you know, uh, police and, and firemen by going and, and, and laying her hands on them in the relief tents. And, and now she's like going around trying to heal the city, you know, she and her group of Reiki healers. So, but there's this way that a traumatic event like that is, uh, it creates a hole in, in, in that little safe kind of complex of understandings that we've created. It, it's this radical meaninglessness that just gets punched into the center of our society. And, and so it's, I mean, and that's what I think happened on a global scale, you know, with an event like that, but, you know, um, particularly in the city. And there's, there's sort of, there's a scene in the, in the novel in which, you know, after Fred has gone through a whole lot of different stuff and, and, and it's, it's, and he's he's sort of circumnavigating the, the the crater along with all these other people, and and that was really the image that I, I think was at the center of the book for me, which is that this kind of traumatic event is like the black hole at the center of a galaxy, you know, and and it itself is is just this utter utter absence of of meaning in this, and, and it's not only an absence of meaning; it's sucking all the meaning into it. And we've got to reshape ourselves around it. And that's how we respond is by creating, is by creating new, new meaning, you know. And, and um, there's a sense in which we are always reacting. But there's also a way in which those kinds of cataclysmic events offer us opportunities. And maybe this is the only good thing about them, that they offer us an opportunity to see ourselves in a slightly different and maybe more realistic way, and that they allow ourselves to, to journey inward if we, if, we, if we use that opportunity and to understand our own natures um, in, in, in a different way. Yeah, you know, something that you just connected for me, because it's been a couple of years since I read this book, but, you know, you brought up earlier the delusion of reference with IV schizophrenia and the savage girl, and how Fred's mom has this this like cluster of people laying, you know, doing Reiki on New York. And in the meaning black hole of this kind of a trauma, it reminds me, and I, I, this comes up on the show a lot, and I, I think for good reason, that we're, we're in a kind of interregnum as a, as a species here between one meaning framework and another that it hasn't really made itself too clear yet, which is a lot like how a tree will like fall in the forest and suddenly all of this light will reach the floor of the forest and the established order has been broken and, and the, the saplings rush to, they compete to fill that gap. And in doing so, 
the wood of those trees is different from the wood of these other of other trees it's curlier it's because they are racing to fill that gap there it's a weird wood it's not straight like it's literally mm. you know like it seems as though there's a really clear analogy between that kind of a phenomenon and the way that if you indu- if you induce a toxic shock to a bacterial culture that it increases the rate of mutation in that culture and in, in what seems to be an attempt to you know like a flailing around to try and find a solution to this thing and that there is a relationship between trauma and creativity and between a sort of you know how people talk about like weird is the new normal and there's so much more conversation around uh, neurodiversity and the benefits of neurodiversity from the level of the system that one of the consequences of 9-11 seems to have been in a way to sensitize us to the freaks to make it okay for us to you know, mm. to not have, to, it, it makes it harder for us to just factor out all of these things because suddenly they're potentially vital evolutionary strategies for us to find a way to make meaning in this in this void. That's interesting. <laughs> I like the metaphor that that we're all weird wood <laughs> these days. <laughs> uh, I, I uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's true. In that book, there are also all these sort of sort of utopian ways and, and, and dystopian ways that we're trying to evolve in response to it. And I don't know if this is exactly what you were saying, but, you know, I, one other thing I wanted to say about the military industrial uh, entertainment complex is I saw that as a kind of weird wood, you know, that that, that, that was, you know, that was be that was that was forming. And I saw that. You know, sort of the all the the sort of neurotheological stuff as as weird wood. You know that that is you know that's forming in the culture, and these two things are you know I, I guess I was I was sort of placing them in opposition to each other a little bit in terms of responses to uh, to developments that have been happening both in you know and, and, and threats and with the with the military entertainment complex that's something that that became like a, a little bit of a koan for me, you know, well, what, you know, like, what is that? How big does it get? How extensive? You know, how how universal is it um, in terms of like, how many of our entertainments are military in nature? And how much of our militarism is entertainment? And, and so, you know, and the bigger that got, um, and I, th- I think it gets big for, for Fred in the book, but too, but then there's also a way in which it ultimately kind of becomes a metaphor for the self and the ego. And, um, you know, the way that the ego is always, you know, it, on this war footing, you know, it wants to it wants to eradicate otherness or keep it away, keep it at bay. It wants to wall itself off from it. It wants to. And it wants to expand um, its own interests. Uh, it's always kind of looking out for number one. And so the helmet and this the, the sort of neurotheological stuff is taking um, Fred, is, is making him start to confront the possibility of an end. to Like, what would the end to that look like? What would an end to military entertainment look like? Not only outside, but but inside, and, and a way of uh, I think that we're in this really strange moment now, where 
you, you use the word ensorcelled, which is great. You know, like I think we're it's true. Like we're being sucked into all these bubbles, um, and we are, you know, kind of being there. There are ways that whether it's like hikikomori or is that is that the word? Like like yeah, people yeah. who are just just playing video games all day long every day and. And and at the same time, there are all these new invitations to interconnection, you know, but it, it does that interconnection, you know, that interconnection can be used to sort of really open things up or it can be used to just reinforce your comfortable idea of, of who you are. And it's interesting to me the way that the world is it's just kind of like this electromagnetic resonance that's just increasing both of these both of these sorts of possibilities you know it's it's putting everything on steroids um there's a lot of weird wood definitely yeah you know something there is a if we were to like take all of the threads of this conversation around the planet and tie them on top that (laughs) that 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 knot looks something like this question about uh like what you just brought up you know the nature of the self because I, I'm really fond of, to bring up Eric Davis again, he, a uh, cultural critic who's written a lot on reanimism, where he sees the way that the, the World Wide Web, whether it's AI assistance or whether it's, you know, uh, scam bots or malware running online or whether it's, you know, people catfishing each other or whether it's, you know, there's like all of these different forms where the machinery of our world has become lively enough to be mistaken for one of us. And at the same time, like on the opposite side of the Mobius strip, ha ha, the, the self has been resolved as a mechanical production as, as this thing that's a, you know, a process of, of information and energy and matter on the one hand, what this means is that we have this cognitive bias toward uh, projecting agency into our environment, you know, in order to protect the self, you know, that the, the, the classic example is the whisper in the grass, you know, it's better to believe it's a tiger. And so that's the military industrial side of it. But then it's, it's, you know, in the sense that any profound truth, the opposite of which is an equally profound truth, there is this thing about how, well, if that's the case, if everything is out to get you, then it's equally the case that I don't exist. That, mm. that like I am just like all of these other things implicated in this sort of automatic web of being. There's something in, in both of these books about, again, like the city, the wilderness in the city, about the, the real within the virtual that speaks to the this promise this this possibility of transcending these paradoxes and this cognitive dissonance through an embrace of both sides of this polarity and that you know like a, a beautiful example of this is the uh the prayer code <laughs> that fred, that fred runs in this you know like inspired by prayer wheels and how like you can just mechanize this thing i don't know uh, yeah I, i'll yeah i'll just just tell people what you're talking about like so just kind of like i guess as a birthday gift um back in the 90s you know his brother got him this cray ymp like early generation supercomputer um 
which the two of them just assembled and never found a use for. Um, it's just a giant hunk of metal um, that basically, you know, like a, like a couple of personal computers could could basically handle the work of. And at some point, he re- he he writes a few lines of code just to make it pray continually over and over again in a, in a kind of loop. Um, and he calls it the prayerizer. So, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know how you were linking that that <laughs> in into. Well, I mean, just that, just that. Like, as soon as we've stepped beyond the comfort zone into this, this oh. weird ontology where yeah, so I'm the a machine Anna, Anna, and the robots yeah. are agents. Yeah, you know. Yeah, like, I think that's true. Uh, what what you know, uh, and and. There's a lot of ways in which we are, you know, sort of, sort of given more agency uh, now or, or, or seemingly. And there are also a lot of ways that, that we are being called upon to that we're being sucked into these ways of objectifying ourselves. You know, I'm really I, I, I really like the way that Jaron Lanier kind of kind of put this um, when he talked about, you know, how the, the, the ways that that that, that we are presenting ourselves on, you know, on, on social media and, and are these ways of kind of reducing ourselves and objectifying ourselves, you know, and making ourselves kind of this, this into this sort of readable and usable code for, and, and that we are, um, I was going to say overlords, uh, but, but it's, it's what we, you know, but what, about what we're projecting onto this, onto this, you know, that we want it to be, we want it to be the God. We want it to be the, the you know, the thing that has agency over us. And, and we're and we're hoping that it's going to save us. And, and you know, and, and ultimately, you know, um, all of this stuff. I, I mean, if you look at it from another point of view, all of this stuff is our just our imaginations. You know, I mean, it's ultimately just us. But then who's us? You know, us becomes a much broader thing. You know, once you let in the 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 self reproducing code and the the you know the octopus intelligence and the wood wide web, making it sort of <laughs> you know altruistic economic decisions and yeah I I, mm-hmm. I I I think ultimately you know what I get out of your books is a lot like what I got out of this, this may seem bizarre and possibly even rude. I apologize for comparing you to other authors, but like it's, it reminds me a lot of what I, what I got out of the writing of Tom Robbins in his enchantment and his play in the possibility and in his reach into the depth of things. But where Tom, who also incidentally starts his, apparently starts his books without any idea of how they will go and writes them one word at a time kind of blows mm-hmm. my mind mm-hmm. um, allowing and, and, in that, and in that sense allows the story to tell itself through him which again sort of interrogates the agency of the of the author in the kind of modern sense um, that that we're not actually solely responsible for oh, yeah. for the for the novel the, no, the novel writes itself through like you know with the with the hand and the brain of, of a person. But Tom, what Tom doesn't do that I, I really admire in your work is this unflinching look at, at again, at the, the paradescence of reality, the dark, bright, or the numinous quality of these things, which is so on display, even in the title of Luminarium, you know, this, this notion mm-hmm. that what we're really after isn't to be found 
in, you know, it's, it, it feels like a lot of authors that want to play in this space of, you know, the enchanted banal or the synchro, you know, the synchronicity of things or strange correlations, the web works of meaning, and then, you know, holes punched in those web works yeah. are all too happy to just be like, and it's all cosmically profound, da 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 da, and not like sit there in what you igno- rightly acknowledged as the koan of these things. Mm. So, oh, thank you. Uh, that, that's, that's nice to hear. I, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm, um, I start out, you know, kind of with, with a couple of seeds and with, uh, you know, but, but ultimately, um, like it took me like luminarium. I, I, it, 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 it took me several years to write. And, and the first three, three or so years of that, I, I was, you know, I, I realized that what I was doing was I was writing a book, uh, you know, that that dealt with these questions of materialism and spirituality, and 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 it took me that long to kind of realize that I didn't know what spirituality was, you know, like because I think everybody thinks they know, you know, like they think they, you know, they think, oh, you know, like it's like you believe X or Y, like you have an opinion about about something, you know. But there's so many ways in which it's it's the opposite of that, you know. And so it was, you know, I, I don't know how relevant this is to the, the discussion, but you know, I mean, I you, you sort of asked about my process and 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 how I discovered things, and so so yeah, I, I you know, at a certain point, I, I said, okay, you know, like I, I can't go on writing this uh, until I until I know the answer to this question, and so. <laughs> I I went to a, a Zendo and and I just was like okay you know so what is this about and and uh, what's the meaning of life and everything like that and it's oh well you know maybe first uh, you could learn how to sit and how to breathe <laughs> and so <laughs> and so you know I and 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 there there are all these ways in which there, there's a lot of sort of spiritual things that you know like the Reiki healing and and Fred gets into Zen too and and ways in which I I uh, there there are humorous sort of elements to all of that but there's also like kind of a deeply earnest uh, search uh, Zen is something I, I still um, it's it's still very central to me you know years and years later I and it was the way for me to 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 put on that helmet and. Um, work with there's also a, a lot of humor um in and in 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 zen too and and in the writings of zen you know it's it's uh they they, they say well this is this is a, it's beyond words and letters but there's all this writing uh within zen which is which is which is which is great and that you get more and more into and deeper into it you know a, a, as you practice it but so i i you know i guess this is a long way of saying that these things you know that that they are helping me to evolve. And and I have to, a, a novel, I think, is is like my karma, you know, like I'm, I'm sort of dealing with all this stuff. And I have to, you know, kind of figure out um, how to help it along. And it, hel- and it helps me along. And I hope that that's the reading experience, too, you know, that people will encounter these books, you know, at, at, at useful moments uh, in, in, in their own lives, and that it'll further their own um, investigations. But I think that art gives us a space for contemplation, you know. I mean, there, there are moments, like, if, if you get into to, to meditation or if you get into sort of the, what, what's at the core of these religions, you, you find that the neurologists and the, you know, and the spiritual practitioners are pretty much in agreement that the self is, is 
a, a virtual reality, you know, in, in itself, and that there's actually a way to experience, whether it's for a moment or whether for it's for an extended period of time, what, what it is for that barrier to come down. And I hope that art, you know, gives us a space for that contemplation so that we can see more clearly, uh, like who we are and, and who we're becoming. And yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say one other thing, like that where things are happening really fast now, you know, like I, I think as, as, as you pointed out and, and I, I and art is, is I, I think a way, you know, sort of, sort of like meditation, you know, art is a way for us to just, just for the space in which we're reading it to, to gain this kind of superpower where we can see the things coming at us and have a little time to and a little distance from it to be able to um you know to sort of be with the characters and and consider like oh would i react like that in this in this situation and maybe that helps us to react a little bit differently in our lives and and be a little bit more um proactive you know, I, I can't believe we made it this far into the conversation without addressing the fact that both of these books are like painfully funny and, <laughs> and that, you know, there is this sense, you know, that the, the in Zen where it's like, if you're not laughing, you don't get the joke. And mm -hmm. so, you know, for both of for both of these works to so skillfully thread the eye of the needle where you're addressing, you know, such difficult and dark topics in a way that's not even really like necessarily or exclusively dark humor, but is really mm -hmm. just humorous and draws to light the ludicrousness of our lives. You know, like we didn't even get into this, but, you know, like while Fred's dealing with this essentially kind of hostile takeover with his company, he's helping his dad by working as a birthday clown. <laughs> you know, and like this, there's that that is yeah. a very Zen kind of uh, a move there. So, I, you know, I normally I would end this show with what now seems to me to be kind of a foolishly serious consideration where I, I say, OK, like, let's assume we live our lives in light of the future, the unborn, you know, that, that we pull our heads out of the the street level view that we take of things. We acknowledge that there's this bigger framing in which we are the ancestors of someone. And what does that mean for our lives? And, I, you know, usually I'll say, OK, well, do you have a message? Do you hope mm. that your life is a message to those people? But I offer you a, a, a choice here, whether that seems like the appropriate question or whether the more appropriate question would be if you had a joke to tell the unborn future, something that, you know, you might might be lost on them. You had to be there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> oh, man. Um you know, I, I, I hope that, that I'm not the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suspect that in some ways, uh, inevitably, we, we are going to be that. And, 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 I, and I actually hope that they look back on us and, and, you know, with a little bit of amusement. That would be a nice development because that would mean that they're, that they're a little bit, that they're in a place where, where they can see all the ways that we were, we were, you know, sort of searching and, and, and not quite finding, but maybe almost kind of forward. So that's, you know, maybe, maybe that's a good way to look at ourselves, you know, with, with a little bit of humor and, and, uh, and with also with a little bit of compassion, um, you know, to, to, I, I, maybe the question is, how do we want them to be looking, you know, to, to be looking at us and, uh, 
you know, maybe and maybe maybe right now that that's that's my answer. I think uh, with with humorous compassion. <laughs> I'll take it, and and that feels like a good place to wrap it. Thank you, Alex. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. It's been great fun. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. And I've been I've been getting into your your podcast, and and it's it's super interesting. You're always very very illuminating, and and and. And so are your guests. So you know, this is uh, this has been a real real pleasure for me in a lot of ways. Thanks. Well, so I just found out that I am an I've been invited to the Amazon Influencer Program. So Fantastic. I ha- I'll be able to put up a storefront of all the books that I like and that I want to I want people reading, and I'll be sure to put your books up there. Uh, on- Influence away. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, uh, you know. That's wonderful. All right. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to Future Fossils. If you want to help kindle the flame of these conversations in the world, trip on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and become a regular supporter. Or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Or just share with your friends. All of those things help. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can reach out to me directly, futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time.